You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. All right, well, good morning. Yeah, it's pretty good. It is kind of warm. I don't know if it's just me, so maybe that's part of it. It's just like, anytime it's warm, I get slow. Um, but I'll try not to. I got this awesome fan down here. Uh, but yeah, it's really good to be with you guys this morning. Um, it's always a, a privilege and an honor to be able to be up here uh, teaching from God's Word and um, just kind of sharing with you guys a little bit of my journey with this passage. And that's pretty much all we're going to do. We're going to talk about the Bible. And it's not just going to be me talking about it. I'm going to actually have you guys participate. So get get ready for that. It's going to be really fun. But we're continuing our series, like Pastor Riz said, in the letter to the Philippians, which we've been in for like a month or so. I don't know. I don't even know what month it actually is. But it's been around a month. And so we're going to be picking up where Pastor Riz left off last week, finishing chapter 1. And so we're going to be in verse 27 through 30. And so just a note that... On, your, on the tables, and there are a few over here, I have these little, like, handouts. And you don't need them because if you have a Bible or a phone, you can look up these passages. Uh, and there's also colored pencils, and those are for you, not the children. Although, if you have kids that want to use it, go for it. And so we're just going to be, we're going to be working with that little sheet today and kind of highlighting a few uh, things that Paul says here. And then kind of working our way uh, to some words of Jesus Um, But if you have that, or if you have a Bible, uh, join with me as I read from our text this morning. This is Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for the gift of your word and the presence of your spirit with us this morning. God, and it's our prayer that the words of my mouth and the the dedication of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. That we would be led and directed by your spirit. That we would be people that are open to what you have to say for us, to us here at Reality Honolulu. So we just submit ourselves to you this morning. Again, we praise you that we are invited into this amazing work that you're doing here. So we just say yes and amen to uh, your leading this morning. Amen. All right, well, uh, if you've ever heard me teach before, you know that I can't just jump straight into it. Uh, we got to back up a little bit, and I know this has been repetitive because Riz has done this every Sunday morning, but we need to talk a little bit about some of the historical context in which the letter was being written because we know that this letter is very applicable to us today, but it actually wasn't written to us. It was written to a little church in Philippi over 2,000, some 2,000 years ago, and they lived in a very different time and very different place and thought very differently than us. 
And so we first want to know what it meant to them, and then we can kind of translate that into what it means for us today. And so if you've been here, you know that this is a little bit of a refresher, but the thing that we know, and of course, if you, if you open it up and you look at chapter 1, verse 1, we know that this is the Apostle Paul with his co-worker Timothy that is writing uh, to the church in Philippi. And it's fairly obvious and straightforward, but we also know that the people that have received this letter, that are hearing this letter for the first time, are those that attend or gather together in the city of Philippi. It's pretty obvious, right? The church in Philippi. Uh, And it was written around 60 to 62 AD while Paul was a prisoner. And if you've been with us, you know a lot of chapter 1 is is just littered with this idea of Paul describing his situation of being imprisoned. And so most likely that would have been in Rome. And so that's the situation in which he is writing, and that's actually important for us as we uh, get into our text further. And I love maps, and so here's a map. If you don't know where the ancient city of Philippi is, you probably can't tell either on this map. Um, (laughs) But it's like up in the far, your left corner, in what's modern-day Greece. Modern-day Greece. And so that's where our original readers are. And then Paul is imprisoned in Rome, which is modern-day Italy. We know that. And it it is quite a long ways away. What's interesting about the church in Philippi is that in Acts chapter 16, we, we see the story of how that church actually came to be. And it was around 10 years before the, the writing of this letter. So this is a, a letter that Paul is writing 10 years after the church was started. And I know Pastor Riz has mentioned uh, one of the reasons why he wanted to do this series is because he feels like there's a lot of connection and parallel with that church and our church. And our church is celebrating ten year, uh, six years while they were around ten years. And what's important to know, more than just looking at a map of where it is, because it's like, who cares about that? Um, but why this, why this city was significant or important. And this city, the city of Philippi, had a special status as a Roman colony. And if you were to go to Luke, uh, Luke's writing in Acts chapter 16, he describes it as a leading city of that district of Macedonia. And as a Roman colony, this city carried this special status that one commentator noted, it was as if it was a city on Italian soil, right? It's not in Italy, but it was as if you were living in a city on Italian soil, And many of the 10,000 residents of that time, around 40 to 50% of them, had this special status called being a Roman citizen. Now, not everybody carried this status, but this uh, particular city, about 50%, so about 4,000 to 5,000 of the population carried this special status. And this meant that if you had this special status, that you were exempt to uh, paying certain taxes. We all wish we had something like that. Um, maybe certain poles that you would have to pay or tolls that you would have to pay uh, to travel on these Roman roads, as well as special legal protection. And we actually will see Paul uh, kind of appeal to this uh, several times uh, in his life. And uh, there was a process, a due process, that you would have to undergo as a Roman citizen before you were punished. And so you kind of see Paul not get that experience in chapter 16 of Acts. But All that being said is if if you were a citizen of Rome living in the city, you had very special status and privilege. 
It would be something that you would very much desire. And it's probably safe to say that some of our members in the church in Philippi had this status. During this time, we don't know how many people that were uh, involved in this church, but 50 maybe, maybe 100 at that point, um, if that. So we're talking about a quarter the size of this room, probably, if not a half, was about the size of the church that met probably in several different people's homes. And it's important to know that the specific situation that Paul is writing to, and he's going to address in our text today, is that just like Paul experienced suffering and is experiencing suffering, being imprisoned in Rome, so too are some of the members of this church. Look with me at verse 29 through 30 of our text this morning. Paul says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, or so that's cool, like yes, we all want to believe in Jesus, but also suffer for his sake. And if you read that, you should stop and wonder, what? I don't think I signed up for that, you know, but Paul's saying, hey, this is, the, this is a part of the journey. And look at what he says, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now still have. So again, Paul in Acts chapter 16, when he helped to start the church here, was also imprisoned in Philippi. That is what he's saying that you had seen and now still hear that I am participating in, which he's still in prison. So most likely we know that some of these people in this church are being persecuted. They are enduring suffering for their faith in Jesus. Uh, and many of them, if not some of them, are being imprisoned for it, just like Paul was. And this is the context in which Paul is writing, and this is important because it's not necessarily the same for us today. At least for me personally. Um, and so if we're not facing the same situation, we might not understand quite how it affects us and applies to us. But I think the message and the truth that Paul is communicating is applicable to us. It might just look a little bit different. I don't know about you, but if I was uh, facing suffering and opposition and I knew that a family member or a friend of mine has been imprisoned for his faith, I would uh, be a little bit worried. I would be a little uh, apprehensive, maybe, to be bold in my faith, or maybe to not participate in the church. And so that's the context, again, that Paul is writing to. And so the, the book of Philippians, the reason why he is writing, there's a few different reasons, and what the, one of the reasons I have this, one of the reasons, uh, is to kind of show you that there's a theme that's happening in here. So the purpose that Paul is writing is to, one, encourage the church to remain joyful in their suffering. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later on in our series. Then he is also writing to encourage unity in the church. And that's the, the very heart of our message this morning and something we're going to continue to talk about. That he's, he's encouraging unity in the church despite their suffering. And he's also writing really practically to thank them for their generous gift, which we're going to talk about in chapter 4. Uh, so those are the three main reasons why Paul is writing. And again, that's our lens and our context in which we're going to engage. So let's uh, continue. And so as we're engaging, although in chapter 1, this is chapter 1, the end of chapter 1, the, the chapters are not original to the, to the letter. And so the break is a little bit weird because actually in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul is starting a new subject. 
And it's going to continue, this idea is going to continue all the way through chapter 2, verse 18. And Paul, if you notice, Paul's going to shift the perspective from himself and from his situation, which he talks about opposition, and he talks about imprisonment, and then he's going to shift onto the church in Philippi and their opposition and their suffering. So the subject changes from Paul to the Philippians. And again, the theme that we're going to see introduced today that's going to continue through chapter 2 is that Paul is encouraging unity in the face of opposition and suffering. And so I've entitled my message today simply, Citizens United. Citizens United. And I'm going to kind of uh, talk a little bit more in detail about what I mean by that. But that's kind of the main idea for our text this morning. And so if you look at chapter 1, verse 27, we're going to talk briefly about just the first part of that verse. Because what's interesting is that this is actually Paul's first imperative in the letter. It's his first exhortation or his first command. And he says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Say that one more time. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So he is in, in, in exhorting the church to live a life worthy of this faith that they have in Christ. And in several commentaries that I read as I studied this, they all noted that, and of course I'm using, I'm using the ESV, just the, the translation that I'm familiar with. They, they, many of the English translations don't really capture the, the, the actual nuance in the original language very well. But if you look at uh, this same passage in the Christian Standard Bible, it gets to the heart of what's actually being communicated. And look up here on the screen, it says this. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Sounds similar, but also a little bit different. Because the verb that Paul uses here literally means live as citizens. So he is, he's encouraging them, he's commanding them, you are to live as citizens. And then he's going to join that with this idea of not just live as citizens in any way you want, but actually in worthiness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And again, I'm going to touch base with that a little bit later. And it's interesting because you have to ask the question, why is he talking about citizenship? Right? Remember the background. Remember the context, right? He's, he's writing to people that understand what citizenship is all about. And so he's going to use this kind of contrast to show what the difference is between living as a citizen of Rome versus as a citizen of heaven or as a citizen worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Gordon Fee, one of my all-time favorite Bible teachers, um, he, in his uh, amazing commentary on Philippians, kind of paraphrased it in this way that I think is helpful. Live in the Roman colony of Philippi as worthy citizens of your heavenly homeland. I'll say that one more time. This again, his kind of paraphrase of this. Live in the Roman colony of Philippi as worthy citizens of your heavenly homeland. And if you know anything about the rest of the letter, you know that this is exactly the same contrast that Paul is going to make later on in chapter 3, verse 20. And he's going to contrast this earthly idea of citizenship versus this heavenly one or this kingdom perspective or a citizenship that is lived worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he says this in chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the connection here. Live as citizens worthy, and then he goes on to say, as a citizenship in heaven. 
which is something interesting to think about. And then again, one commentator noted, as Philippi was a colony of Rome in Macedonia, Paul is saying that the church was to be a colony of heaven on earth. Which is kind of a cool idea to think about, I think. It reminds me of when Jesus prays the prayer, let your kingdom come and your will be done on, here on earth as it is in heaven. And as citizens of heaven, Paul doesn't just leave it there. He's not just like, hey, by the way, I want to remind you guys that you're a citizen of heaven, not just of, of Rome. But he's going to explain what it actually means and what it actually looks like to live as a worthy citizen of heaven. And he's going to talk about that a little bit later on uh, in this passage. And this idea of living as a worthy citizen is nothing new to our ancient readers. Because in the ancient world, there was kind of a phrase that people would use to describe somebody. They would say, you are worthy of this particular city. And that worthiness was based off of maybe... uh, how they participated in the worship of uh, their gods in their temples or participated in their feasts. And so Paul is saying, hey, just like people would say, you are worthy to be a citizen of Philippi, you are to be worthy of being a citizen of heaven. And Janine Brown, in her commentary on Philippians, says it this way, uh, that I just want to kind of summarize this idea. She says this, As cities expected their citizens to live in undivided loyalty to their laws, their norms, and ideals, Paul expects believers in Jesus to live in undivided loyalty to the norms and values implicit in the gospel and to live and to Jesus as Lord. I'll just read that one more time because it's very good. As citizens... Expect, as cities expected their citizens to live in undivided loyalty to their laws, norms, and ideals, Paul expects believers in Jesus to live in undivided loyalty to the norms and values implicit in the gospel and to Jesus as Lord. Now that's something I think that we can just think about and ponder for the rest of the day and ask ourselves, am I living in the way that Paul wanted the people of Philippi to live? Right? Because where are our loyalties And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is like, okay, cool, Paul, you tell people to do this, but what are you asking them to actually do? How do you, how are the Philippians supposed to live as worthy citizens of the gospel? What are the norms and values of heaven? Now, if you wanted to go and just read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, that would be a great place to start. But we're going to talk about the, the immediate context at the end of the second half of verse 27 through uh, 28. And this is what Paul says. I'm just going to start at the the beginning of chapter, uh, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So we we figured out kind of what that idea means. So that whether I come and see you, because that's Paul's desire, Paul is wanting to come and visit them, or I remain absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. Now, those colored pencils, if you have a pen, I want you to underline in there the, the, the idea of one spirit. And most commentators refer to this or say that this is not talking about um, some kind of like, essentially what they're saying is that this is in the one spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit. Standing firm in the Holy Spirit. One spirit, the spirit of God with one mind. Again, highlight that or underline that. One mind striving side by side 
underlined side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So what is standing out to us? What is the thing that's being repeated in there? Notice he says, one spirit, one mind, side by side. For Paul, in this particular instance, someone living their lives as a worthy citizen of heaven is one that pursues unity amongst one another. That is the value that Paul is exhorting his uh, readers to adopt. There's many other things, but in this particular case, this is the thing that he is uh, proactively trying to get them to live out. Now notice the, some of the language here, striving side by side, not frightened by your opponents. What language does that remind you of? What do we talk about when we talk about striving side by side and facing opponents? Like sports. This is athletic type of language. Just by a show of hands, who's participated in like a team activity where you have to rely on somebody else to defeat your opponent? Okay, I'm sure everybody has, uh, but... Yeah, everyone has. So everyone raise their hand. Uh, so I guess if you haven't, this is going to be a little bit hard. But we all understand this. Even if you haven't, you've, you watch it, right? So I tried really hard this morning to abstain from watching football because I was like, i got to focus on this message, but that's really what I wanted to do. But if you watch football or basketball or baseball or whatever it is, volleyball, it's a team sport. And the only way that the, the team can overcome their opponents is by doing it together. Right? And you've all seen a team where you're like, oh my gosh, that team is not unified and it's a disaster. But you've also seen the power of a team that may not be the most skilled or most talented. When they come together, they're actually able to do amazing things. So that's what Paul is trying to get us to see here. The only way that the Philippians can overcome the suffering and the opposition is by coming together striving side by side. These are action words. They're not passive words. And if you continue, I'm stealing a little bit of Riz's thunder, so just pretend like you didn't hear this next week. So continue on, and you look at the, the notes. I've included two verses in chapter 2 that are just continuing in this. And look at what he continues to say. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Underline that. Having the same love. Underline that. Being in full accord, or that word can mean united in spirit or harmonious, and of one mind. I think I see a theme going on here, right? Anytime you're reading and you see this idea, this rep repeated idea or word or phrase, that frequently you know that that's the way the author is cluing you in. That's the main idea or the main takeaway from this passage. It doesn't mean that everything else is insignificant. But when I was working on this and kind of going through it at home, I literally printed it off and I just underlined. And I began to see very clearly what the point Paul was trying to make. As a citizen considered worthy of God's kingdom, it is one who not only values unity, but pursues unity, that fights for unity. It's not enough to just say, yeah, unity is great, and then I'm going to wait for somebody else to do all the work for me. Unity is not passive. It does not come naturally. 
especially when you're in an environment where people don't think and act and talk like you. And what's cool is that Paul, in his letter to Ephesians, which is kind of that second text right in the middle, in chapter 4, verse 1 through 6, says almost the same exact thing. Look at what he says. I, therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called. You're like, wait a minute, worthy living? Yeah, that sounds familiar. You have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And I love this, how he kind of, this is like almost like the, the very center. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Again, eager. Eager. That's an action word. To maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is, just note with me, one body, one Spirit, in which you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And I think that's seven, which is awesome, because that means complete. At the Bible Project, we were, we were recording this session on uh, the second half of Exodus, and you just realize seven is everywhere. So maybe I just made that up right now. But you guys get what Paul is getting at here. It's almost the exact same thing that he's encouraging the church in Ephesus as Philippi. There's something really important that Paul is trying to say. That the very survival of the early church was going to be contingent on their being unified. And not only is it, is it important for their church to actually survive in their current situation, but it is one of the highest values in heaven. Do you guys believe that? Do you believe that unity in church is one of the highest values that heaven has to say. And if you're not convinced by Paul in Philippians or Ephesians, I hope Jesus can convince you. So I'm going to actually, have, I'm going to actually turn the attention away from myself. And if this makes you uncomfortable, I, I'm not sorry. And I actually want you all to engage with the people next to you in a spirit of unity, <laughs> I want you to read, and again, it's on, it's on the page, read John chapter 17, verse 20 through 23. This is a little part of this prayer that Jesus prays. And it's a prayer for unity, so I thought it was appropriate. So I want you to read it together, or with the person next to you. And if you have that same color, just underline if you see similarities. And then I want you guys together to discuss this question. I want you to ask yourself this question. What are ways that I can be proactive in fostering unity in our church? Now, what I, what I want to, us to, to think about is this particular body. Now, I know we can talk about church as far as like my friend that goes to a different church, that kind of stuff. But I want us to think about Reality Honolulu is where you are at right now. What can you do, practically speaking, to foster, to be eager to maintain unity in this church? Think really simply. Don't think I need to, like, solve world peace or something like that. It's like, just think really practically. What's one or two really simple ways that I can apply this message right now as a church? All right, I'm going to give you a few minutes to do that, and then I'll come back up. So go for it.
All right, we're going to bring it back together. I always hate breaking up conversations. Sounds like you guys are coming up with some good things. And again, just like in, in the spirit of unity, just having a conversation with each other is a good place to start, right? Um, but I actually want to, as we kind of start wrapping up here a little bit, I want, I want to just read that section of Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, which I know you guys have read because I think it's really powerful. This is what Jesus says as he's praying. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, which is me and you, that they may all be one unity, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Isn't that interesting that Jesus makes that connection? Our witness as a church is contingent on our unification. Meaning that if we're not unified, it's doing the exact opposite, <laughs> right? He's going to go on to say the same thing. The glory that you have given me, I have, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved me, even as you loved me. So there's something more to it, to unity than just making somebody else feel welcome, which is great. But it's actually a, a testimony that we can carry with us, that people can see the way that we treat one another and we love one another and we respect and honor one another. And there's going to be something that they see in us that they don't see in other places. And it's going to be a testimony and a witness to the Spirit of God, the one Spirit who is empowering us to actually live this prayer out. So hopefully you guys were able to come up with one or two really practical ways, something that I was thinking about. Again, this, you may be like, oh my gosh, it was that practical. I'm like, hey, if I want to be somebody who is actively practicing unity, then every time I come to church on Sunday, I want to find somebody that I don't know and have a conversation with that person. It could be something as simple as that. Um, right? It doesn't, don't, don't do, go too crazy uh, with it. Um, but it could just be something like that. Because there's something that God wants to do here in this particular church. And it's going to start with us coming together and being unified. People that value the things that God values. So that we can be, can be one that is considered worthy of his kingdom. And so that's going, to, that's going to be one thing that I want you guys to kind of think a little bit more about and maybe even pray about as we begin our idea of transitioning kind of into our second set of musical worship and kind of just reflecting on that. Those things that you wrote down, feel free to continue to think about those and ponder those. And even if there's something practical that you're like, hey, I, I, I had this idea of like praying for somebody. What a great time to go and do that, right? Like uh, in the second set of musical worship, there's other things that you guys can be doing to foster unity. But before we do that, I want to just touch base really quickly on three myths about unity, biblical unity, that I think is important. Because it's great to talk about it, but it's like, what is it and what is it not? The first is that biblical unity is not uniformity. That's not what it is. The vision of heaven is a body of many different members. Individuals that from every tribe, tongue, and nation in Revelation chapter 7. If you don't like being around other people that don't think and talk and act like you, you may want to think twice about going to heaven. Because that's what it's going to be. So unity is not about everybody looking and thinking and talking and acting like that. And so I'm just going to go to a church where I find that and then I can be unified. It's actually unity in diversity that is the vision of heaven. 
How cool would it be? What a testimony that is to the world that is trying to get people to be unified and just can't do it. When you have the Spirit of God living in you, that is when you can be empowered to actually be unified with people that are different than you. So biblical unity does not mean uniformity. The second thing, what does it say up there? Oh, I have it right here. Biblical unity is passive. Biblical unity is an active thing. Paul says, be eager to maintain. It's striving side by side. You can't just say, yeah, unity is cool, and just sit back and be like, well, let's just see what happens. That's why when we think practically about how to apply this, we need to think, what is my actual response to this? It's not enough to just hear something that sounds good, but we actually have to learn how to apply that. Biblical unity is not passive. I keep saying this wrong. Abby, help me, like, word this, and I, I'm wording it the opposite way. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, and then the third is biblical unity is optional. Biblical unity is optional. That's a myth, meaning biblical unity is not optional. It's just not. It's something that Paul commanded the church in Ephesus and the church in Philippi to actively participate in. And it's something that Jesus prayed for us to do. If you're a part of God's kingdom, if you're a citizen of heaven, you should live in a life worthy of that. Meaning that you're somebody who uh, strives and is eager to maintaining unity. And the thing is, like, it is really hard. Being unified with somebody that is just like you is so easy to do. It is so hard to be unified with somebody that you just don't get along with, that has a different political ideology than you, right? But we understand that it's not, hey, find people that all think like you and that's cool. It's actually the opposite. We need more so to fight for unity in our church. Not so that we can just all gather together and sing Kumbaya or something like that. It's so that the world can know that Jesus was sent by God because it's going to be a testimony to those around us. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up as we, as we can conclude here. And just focus our attention and our minds and our thoughts on Jesus and again, it's not, it's not something that we do to earn our salvation, right? It's not, it's not that. It's not that Jesus is like, all right, you can get salvation when you actually do these things. No. But it's, a, it's an outworking of our salvation. It's the Holy Spirit in us that empowers us to live lives that are worthy of his kingdom. And what an amazing opportunity that we have as Reality Honolulu to hear the word of God, to be attentive to the Spirit, and then to ask him, how are we to live this out? How can we be people that are eager to maintain this bond or this spirit of unity? And if you've been with us before, you guys know that in the second set of musical worship, there's a few different things that are happening. You can engage in uh, the singing of songs. You can come here and posture yourself in, in, a, in a heart of worship by kneeling or by sitting. And then on the right, my right, and my left is communion. So at any time during this uh, response time, you feel led or you want to participate in that, you're more than welcome to. So you join me in, in praying. Yeah, Father, it's, it's really our heart's desire to see your kingdom come and your will be done here in, in reality Honolulu as it is in heaven. God, what a cool thing it is to think that we can be a little colony of heaven right here in this auditorium. 
God, but we don't, we don't want to just be people that are, that are thinking individual or thinking that, um, you know, I just need to find the right people, the right place to be unified. God, we want to be people that uh, really value unity, value the norms and values of heaven, God, and actively live that out and participate in it. And Father, we recognize our need for your spirit to empower us. We cannot do it on our own. We cannot truly live out the prayer that you prayed for us to be one as you and the Father were one without the helping and the leading of your Spirit empowering us to do so. God, would you show us grace and mercy as we, as we, we navigate this in, in our midst, Lord, and we work towards uh, unity with one another.